Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. <laughs> All right, Revelation chapter 19. Hey, um, if you were here last week, we did the first half of Revelation chapter 19, and the very verse, first word of, of verse 1 in chapter 19 is after these things. It's a Greek word, metatauta. And uh, after what things? Well, after the destruction of Babylon, uh, both commercial and religious Babylon, we saw in chapter 17 and 18. Well, we get to verse 11 where we're picking it up now, and it says, now. It's like, you know, first it was after these things, we went through the first 11 or first 10 verses, and we get to verse 11 now. It's like there's something's changing. What's changing? I think there's a change in scenery is what's taking place here. Because you look at what John says there in verse 11. He says, now I saw heaven opened. You might say, well, wait a minute. If you recall back in chapter 4, John got called up to heaven to, to see what was going on. He saw the throne room of heaven. So now all of a sudden he's like, now uh, heaven, you know, he sees heaven open. So what, what's, what's changed? Well, I think what's changed is John's perspective. I think now the perspective where John is at, he's seeing heaven from the viewpoint of earth. What's taking place, as we'll see here uh, in, in, on earth there at this time. And so his perspective is from earth. He sees heaven opened, heaven being opened or heaven revealed. Now in the Bible, there's three types of heaven that's referred to in the Bible. The very first one is the firmament, the Bible calls it, which is, we would call it our sky. You know, the birds fly through the sky, our atmosphere. That's the first heaven. Then the Bible calls the next heaven the starry heavens. We would call that outer space or maybe the universe or something like that. And then finally, the Bible refers to the heaven or heavens, or as Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians 12, the third heaven. And so that is, uh, I believe, this is the heaven that, that John is referring to. So, you know, that kind of raises a question. Where is heaven? And, you know, I think the, the, the first thought that maybe comes to your head is heaven's up. And, you know, there are scripture that kind of gives you that sense that heaven is up. For example, Amos 9.2, Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb, <clears throat> excuse me, though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. So there's a sense of heaven being up. Mark 16, verse 19, the ascension of Jesus Christ. So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So, you know, for, for us here on earth, there's a sense that heaven's up. And again, there's scripture that seems to support that that idea. But I want you to keep and bear in mind something. You and I are confined to time and space in this life. Heaven exists outside of time and space. And I, I don't want to get too metaphysical with you guys. I'm not trying to get like, woo, you know. Um, I did have a lot of coffee this morning, but that's not why. Um, but it's almost as if heaven's in a dimension that's kind of like parallel to us, although we don't see it. That's kind of the sense that I have about heaven. You think about when Jesus 
appeared after his resurrection, when he would appear to his disciples, it would be like he was stepping into that dimension and stepping back out. You know, he would appear, he would be there, and then all of a sudden he would disappear again. It's like, you know, he didn't float up every time. He just disappeared. So there's a sense that heaven is not necessarily just up, but it's around us. Paul in Acts chapter 9, verse 3, remember when Saul, who was later named, renamed Paul, when he came to faith in the Lord, he was on his way to Syria on, his, on the road to Damascus, and, and uh, the Lord appeared to him there. In Acts 9, verse 3, it says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. I was trying to find an image of it, and I was looking on the internet. Everything's pictures of, you know, there's just like a spotlight coming down. And, and yet when you read the scripture, it says the light shone around him. So it kind of gives you a little bit of a different sense. So I'm not saying, you know, heaven's not up, because there's definitely verses that, that support that. But wherever heaven is, it is near us. It's very near us. It's close enough for the Lord to see us. Psalm 11, verse 4 the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. He sees what's taking place in here right now. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So heaven's close enough for the Lord to see us. Heaven is close enough for the Lord to hear us. Matthew 12, verse 36, Jesus said this, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. In other words, even even something you say under your breath, man, that's recorded. Men are going to be held accountable for what they say. That's how close heaven is. The Lord can hear us. Malachi, now that's, an, that's kind of like a, ooh, you know, I, that's, not a, that's kind of a bummer, right? It's like anything you say, the Lord hears it. But here's an encouraging verse, Malachi 3.16. It says this, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. If you come to a Bible study on Wednesday nights, and see, Sunday mornings I preach a sermon, on Wednesday evenings it's an interactive Bible study. You know, I'll share a little bit, but then also we have discussion and we talk through the scriptures. Um, And if you're doing that, the Lord's listening. Hey, I heard what Larissa said about me. You know, hey, Gabriel, listen to this. Not that Gabriel, but the angel Gabriel. Hey, Gabriel, listen to this, you know. In any event, John sees heaven being opened or being revealed before the inhabitants of earth. And what I think about when I, when I think of this verse, I think back to 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. And you know the story when Elisha and his servants, they're surrounded by the uh, armies of Syria. And the servants freaking out. It's like we're surrounded, you know. And, and uh, it says in verse 17 of 2 Kings 6, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I think at that moment, heaven was just flashed open there for the servant to see, man, there's angels all around. So let's look at verse 11. (laughs) That was the introduction, by the way. Um, Verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. The very first thing John sees is a white horse. And uh, is this a horse like we know horses on earth? And, you know, I, I don't know. Here's another question. Do all dogs go to heaven? <laughs> a lot of people think they do, right? Um, I don't know that either. We can assume, though, that cats go to heaven because there's harps in heaven and they need cat gut for the string. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> all right. That was bad for you cat lovers. I'm sorry. <laughs> but they'll be in heaven, right? Okay. <laughs> all right. No, but seriously, are these real horses like you and I would see them here on earth? These may be, or it may not be, these may be horses that are created especially for this purpose in heaven. <laughs> Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 3.21, Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth? So it's hard to say. We'll know when we get there, I guess. So he sees this horse, but it says, And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now, there's one thing I want to kind of clarify up. If you were here when we went through Revelation 6, I talked about it. But this is not the same rider on the white horse that you see in Revelation chapter 6. Some people say it, think it is. I don't think it is. My biggest argument against this not being the same rider as the rider on the white horse in chapter 6 is because the lamb is opening the seals. We know the Lamb is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's, who's worthy to open the seals on that scroll there in chapter 6. And so he's loosening the seals, taking the seven seals off this scroll. And each time he takes a seal off, something happens. Well, he takes this one seal off. I think it's the, uh, is it the first seal? It might be the first seal. He takes the first seal off and, and out comes this rider on this white horse. So it's kind of like the Lamb's opening the seal and then all of a sudden he hops on a horse to ride out. You know, I don't... I don't Personally, I have a problem with that. I think the rider of the white horse in chapter 6 is the Antichrist. The reason why I say that is he has a bow with no arrows, which suggests a bloodless victory of deception over the nations, and sure enough, that's what he does. Also, the rider on the white horse in chapter 6 is wearing a Stephanos crown, which is the victor's crown. He's not wearing a diadem, the crown that a sovereign wears that suggests authority. And the rider on the white horse here in chapter 19, if you looked in the Greek, he's wearing many diadems. He has full sovereignty. So John doesn't focus on the horse, but on the rider who sits on the horse. He's called faithful and true. He's faithful, right? Jesus is faithful. He's faithful to complete the work of our redemption at Calvary. And he was obedient to death, even the death on a cross for you and I. He's faithful. He's faithful to complete our salvation. We were saved. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're saved, but he's still returning for us. And so he's faithful to complete our salvation by returning for you and I, his bride. And he's faithful to complete all the promises of God. And in this case here in chapter 19, it includes judgment. God's faithful to judge. He's faithful. That word faithful is worthy of trust. You know... I'm not necessarily, I, I try to be as faithful as I can. I try, to, I try to keep to my word as much as possible. But I'll be honest with you, I let people down sometimes. You know, I'm not always perfectly faithful. I wish I was, but I'm not. 
That's why it's not good to depend on a man or a woman. It's not good to depend on people. Depend on the Lord because Jesus is faithful. He's always faithful, completely faithful. He's called faithful and true. In other words, he doesn't just speak truth or act truthfully. He is true. That word there means one who cannot lie. He's real. He's genuine. Opposite to what is fictitious or counterfeit or imaginary or or simulated or pretended. Opposite to what is imperfect, defective, frail, or uncertain. He's true. He's the real thing. The Antichrist tries, tries to imitate Christ. And it says, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Now, you recall Christ's first appearance on earth as a king when he rode into Jerusalem, right, on a donkey. The donkey was a symbol for peace. In fact, in Luke 19.42, it says, Jesus said, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. So his first appearance was on a donkey, a symbol of peace. But now he appears as king of kings and lord of lords riding on a horse, the symbol for war. Verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. I've never, never, I was in the military, but I was never in the military during war. Some of you may have, and I know some of you actually have. Um, You know, some battles... They're marked by indiscriminate killing, right? I mean, people get killed. You hear the terms collateral damage. Or, you know, sometimes it's real tragic when you hear about friendly fire. Where, you know, your own forces, they, they, they get caught in the crossfire or somehow a, a missile goes, you know, a bomb goes the wrong, wrong direction, whatever, and they, they end up killing their own people. Listen, the Lord's eyes are like a flame of fire. That means they're piercing They're penetrating. They're not only judging the actions, but the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. There's no indiscriminate judgment here. There's no indiscriminate, there's no collateral damage. The Lord, he's seeing everybody for as they are. He's piercing through there. You know, he looks through you and I too. He sees our thoughts. He sees our, our attitudes of our heart. It says in righteousness, he judges and makes war, and on his head were many crowns. Again, I mentioned that earlier. Those, that's the Greek word diadems. That means he's full of all authority, all sovereignty. And then it says he had a name written that no one knew except himself. That's kind of an interesting, that's kind of an interesting description there. Well, I think what it speaks of is Jesus' eternal relationship with the Father as, as the Son. No one, Jesus himself said, no one knows the Son except the Father. So I think it just speaks to that relationship that he has with the Father. Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So his robe is dipped in blood. Now, this is not the blood that was shed at Calvary. It's not the blood of the martyrs that was shed by the great harlot Babylon. What this is referring to is a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 3, and I'm going to read it to you. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This is one, uh, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And then the response, 
I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And then there's the next question. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? The answer is, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. This is the blood of his enemies as he's coming to judge the nations, the armies on earth here in chapter 19. Verse 14, And the armies in heaven... Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. You know that you're in the Bible? Because that's you. If you're, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you're one of those people riding the horses behind the Lord Jesus. Notice, our clothes are white and clean compared to his, which is covered in blood. I think that's very significant. Because when we return with the Lord, we're not helping the Lord fight. (laughs) We're just following behind him. The battle belongs to the Lord. You know, that's so true even today for you and I as believers. Sometimes we try to fight our own battles. You know, we we, we come up against something and we try to, you know, we get offended or, or, or whatever. And we feel like we have to fight our battle. We have to set things straight. That's, that's a natural tendency. But the reality is the battle belongs to the Lord. There's a beautiful picture of this in Second uh, Chronicles. And if you have your Bibles, hopefully you all do, keep your finger in Revelation 19, but turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20. And we're going to just look at this story about Jehoshaphat. He was a king of Judah during this time. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. Look, If you look at verse 1 and 2, it says, It happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hazazan, Tamar, which is En Gedi. And look at verse 3. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah, So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. So everybody's coming to pray. And so Jehoshaphat, they're they're fasting and they're praying and they're seeking the Lord. Skip down to verse 12. This is what Jehoshaphat's praying out to the Lord. He says, O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are. Or upon you. Have you ever felt that way? It's like, Lord, I don't know how to deal with this situation. I, I, I'm helpless to do anything, Lord. I, there's nothing I can do. Well, the best thing you can do is turk, turn your eyes to the Lord. Look at verse 14. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mattaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all of you of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you, King Jehoshaphat, for thus says the Lord to you, do not be be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Skip down to verse 17. You will not need to fight in this battle. 
Position yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And then jump down to verse 21. This is Jehoshaphat. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who should sing to the Lord and who should praise the beauty of holiness. And they went out before the army and were saying, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endures forever. So all they did was they just started worshiping the Lord. He's got this overwhelming situation. He doesn't know what to do. He prays, and then he just starts worshiping the Lord. Verse 22, Now when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the people of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were defeated. The Lord fought the battle. They didn't have to do anything. They just had to stand and worship the Lord, keep their eyes focused on the Lord. And that's what you and I need to do when we're facing something that we can't, we have no control over. Paul says this in Romans 12, verse 17. It says, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Why? Because there's sometimes you can't, you, whatever you can do to make peace with those people, sometimes they won't reciprocate. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So these armies, they're coming behind Jesus. Jesus is fighting the battle. We're just, we're just going along for the ride. And we will be riding horses. For some of you, that's like, yeah, you like riding horses. For me, you know, the Lone Ranger, I used to always watch the Lone Ranger. He made it look easy, right? I owe silver. Um, I, I always wanted to be like the Lone Ranger taking off. You know, um, back when Teresa and I were first married, we went, uh, her foster parents lived in Montana. We went and visited them in Montana. We had a couple kids at the time. And uh, <clears throat> the daughters were really into horseback riding. They lived out in the country. And they said, well, let's, let's all go horseback riding. We're like, okay. You know, I, I, I think I read them on them once down at like this park in San Jose, which, you know, an old horse that didn't do anything, basically just sat on it, you know, kind of. So anyway, so we get on these horses, and uh, the horse I got on didn't want to go. And I was doing everything I could to get it to keep going with the people. You know, we went through people's fields and farms, and we went for miles. That stupid horse, man, I tell you, it just wouldn't go, wouldn't go. It's just like, I'm just like, this is not fun. And then at one point they go, you know, we've gone far enough. Let's turn around and go back. So they started to turn around. As soon as they turned around that horse, it was like, I couldn't keep that thing. I couldn't slow it down, man. It was like almost wanting to go full gallop, and I didn't know how to gallop with the horse. You know, I'm like, I was freaking out. I'm like, this is not fun. <laughs> it wasn't fun going out. Now it's not fun going back. And that horse ran the whole way back. I mean, it was just like, crazy thing. My wife had a fun experience with the horse. She went back when we first started the Bible study, uh, the church here. It was a Bible study at the time, and, and uh, some of the ladies had some horses, and they said, let's go all go horseback riding. So the women went horseback riding, and Teresa's horse was in heat. And uh, so the horses behind them were trying to get fresh with her horse, and so she was not enjoying that trip either. So anyways... You may not have experience riding horses, may not enjoy riding horses, but somehow I think it's going to be fine when we're in heaven. We'll, we'll, we'll be riding those horses, so cheer up. <laughs> Verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. 
He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. That word for the sword there is a ramphaya, which was a Thracian sword, and that's actually a replica of one. It's usually larger and longer than most swords. And I think of the word of God, it just reaches and, and does its job, you know. Um, it says, he himself will rule them with a rod of, an, of iron. This is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. And what it's referring to is the rule of Christ during the millennium after chapter 19. We'll get to that when we, we're in chapter 20. It says, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. It's also a fulfillment of Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 3. John Walvoord, he's a commentator, he's, he's, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but um, he wrote this. He says, these passages point to the sad conclusion that in the day of judgment, it's too late for men to expect the mercy of God. That's really so sobering when you think about it. You know, right now, you and I can cry out for mercy, and the Lord is such a merciful, forgiving, and loving God. But there will be a point He's still a loving God, but he's also a righteous God. And he's going to judge in righteousness. You know, in life, sometimes there's people that you know or people you're related to or you're, maybe you work around and whatever, and you feel like you have to walk on eggshells around or you are walking on eggshells around. It's like anything you do is going to set them off and they're just going to go in a rage. You know, you never know for sure. So you, gotta, you just got to, well, I got to talk carefully to this person because they're going to fly off the handle. It's not that way with God. Avoiding God's wrath is the easiest thing to do. Avoiding God's wrath that we're reading here, it's the easiest thing to do. He makes it so easy for people to, to escape wrath. He's, made, he's done everything that a person could do. Some say, well, how do, how do you know that God's love? Man, he sent his own son to die on the cross for us. What, what greater love could someone do? He sent prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel. He's given us the word of God. He's, he's provided us with teachers and, and, and people to encourage us and evangelists and everything. He's done everything, plus he's given the Holy Spirit to, to convict the world of sin. He's done everything possible, so avoiding God's wrath is the easiest thing to do. But let me put it another way. Experiencing God's wrath is the hardest thing to do. And yet, here are these people, they've completely neglected God's grace. They've shaken their fists in his face at this point. And he has no choice at this point. There's going to come a time when that window of grace is closed. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, man, today is a day of salvation. You may not have tomorrow. I'm not saying Jesus is coming back tonight, but you may not be here tomorrow. You may, be, you may be stepping into eternity tonight. Today is the day of salvation. That window of grace, it will close at some point. For everybody, it closes at some point. And here in chapter 19, it closes. And, and I, I would imagine at this point, someone's going to cry out for mercy, and it's going to be too late. Because now he's judging in righteousness. It reminds me of Noah's Ark. Remember, you know, for 100 years or whatever, Noah's building this ark, and people are mocking him. They don't even know what rain is, right? They're mocking him. And finally, you know, he and his family goes into the ark, and there comes a point where God closes the door. And there's people crying, and the water's starting to go up, and they're probably crying. They're probably, you know, asking for mercy and stuff. 
God clo- Noah couldn't even open that door. God closed it. And I think that's what's happening here. Pretty somber when you think about it. Verse 16, And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, the kings on earth during those days, they all had swords strapped to their thighs. But the king of kings and lord of lords, he doesn't need a sword on his side. He's got one proceeding from his mouth. And not, not a literal sword. This is speaking of his word. His word of God is a sword. The word of God is a sword. <coughs> you know, when we went through Revelation chapter 17 and 18, I, I, one of the introductions when we got into chapter 17, I said... These two chapters is kind of, in a sense, a tale of two cities, right? The city of God, which is Jerusalem, and the city of man, which is Babylon. That's what chapter 17 and 18 is. Well, chapter 19 is a tale of two suppers, so to speak. See, people can either enjoy a supper, we saw in the first few verses of chapter 11, or they can be supper, which is what's going to occur here. Revelation 19 starts out with the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it ends with a supper for the birds of the air. Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and and great. When it says there that the angel is standing in the sun, what you know? How do you how do you figure that, or what 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 is he talking about? Again, this is my take. The angel's probably eclipsing what's left of the sun because you'll recall back in Revelation 16, the fifth bowl judgment, the kingdom of the Antichrist is in darkness. So there's already a, there's already a, the sun is not as bright as it was before. Um, Maybe the brilliance of the angels outshining whatever is left of the sun. I mean, it's just he's just standing there and he's blocking the sun. I don't know. I don't know how to interpret that. But he stands there in the sun and, and he cries out and, and he says, Come to all the birds that fly in heaven. He says, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. <clears throat> that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. So the angel invites the birds of the air to gorge themselves on the flesh of men and beasts that are on the earth at this point. Verse 19, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. As we've been going through Revelation, I've mentioned this many times, and I even mentioned it today, I think, the battle of Armageddon. You know, as I was studying this, I actually think that's a misnomer. <laughs> we really shouldn't call it the Battle of Armageddon because it's not even a battle. I think it's better terms the slaughter of Armageddon. It's not a battle because notice the beasts, excuse me, the beast, which is the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies, they gather together to make war. I don't even think they get a shot off. I don't even think they shoot a missile or an RPG or anything. I think before they even, they're they're gathering together and before they know it, it's already over. It's done. There's a picture of that in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings chapter 19, you you don't need to turn there, I'll just read it to you. But in 2 Kings 19, Hezekiah is the king of Judah. 
And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he's coming against uh, Judah. And again, he's surrounded Jerusalem. And Isaiah is the prophet at this time. And Isaiah is seeking the Lord. And the Lord speaks to Isaiah in 2 Kings 19.32. He says, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build, build a shield mount, against shield mound against excuse me siege mount against it verse 35 it says and it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the lord went out and killed in the camp of the assyrians 185,000 and when the people arose early in the morning there were the corpse corpses all dead so in that battle the lord told you know through isaiah to hezekiah they're not even going to get a shot off. They're not even, even going to shoot anything. And that night, an angel of the Lord kills 185,000. Here, it's not an angel of the Lord. Here, it's Jesus himself. He's going to, just going to wipe out those armies. It's not even, we can't even call it a battle. It's the slaughter of Armageddon. Verse 20. Then the beast was captured... And with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's very interesting to me. The kings of the earth and their armies are killed. What does that mean? Well, that means they're going to spend the first 1,000 years in Hades or Sheol or hell, as, you would, as some people would call it. They're there awaiting the resurrection because they'll be resurrected also to the great white throne judgment. We'll be getting to that here in chapter 20. So the first 1,000 years, they're going to be in, in Hades. But not the Antichrist and the false prophet. That's fascinating to me. They're captured, they're cast alive into the lake of fire. They're not even going to be resurrected to judgment. They're just thrown into the lake of fire. Later on, we'll see Satan and, 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 and the angels are, and everybody else that's judged on the great judgment. They'll join the Antichrist and the false prophet, who've already been there for a thousand years. That's how serious God's judgment is against those two. Very fascinating to me. And they'll be there, of course, for all eternity. Well, that was kind of a somber chapter. You know, I grew up in California, and and, uh, one of the things I used to like to do, we had some really tall foothills around around the valley, Santa Clara Valley, and and, uh, we'd go up into some of the mountains, and they're pretty high up, and we'd take our bicycles. And, uh, you know, those roads were so steep. There's one place called Mount Ummanum. It used to be, if you, if you were in the 60s in, in San Francisco Bay Area, there was this great big radar dome that rotated. And it was the highest peak that you could see around from, you could always see, the, it was a landmark, you know. And then they got rid of the, after satellites, they got rid of the radar dome, but there's still a little little house on top of this thing. And so we would try to go up there. You could only, it was still government property, so you can get all the way up to, Mount, to the top of it. But you can get pretty close to it. Uh, up to the gate anyways and it was a steep road and so we would take our bicycles and uh you know i tell you you couldn't ride your bike up there you had to walk i mean and so you'd be walking and walking and walking uphill with your bicycle when you got to the top there it's like okay it's all downhill from here on out and it was fun 
Um, you'd just be flying down these roads, which probably wasn't the safest thing because there was a lot of gravel and turns, and you know you could wipe out pretty easily. But as a kid, you don't think about those things. So, you know, it was all downhill at that point. And I, you know, we've been climbing this hill. There's been some really serious stuff. Even this last chapter, God's judgment and his, you know, this this slaughter is taking place, and it, it's just wow. But you know what? We're at the top of the peak now, and it's all downhill from here on out. I love that. Next week, we're going to be talking about the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, which is known as the millennium. Uh, it's an exciting chapter, chapter 20. There'll be a, a brief and futile rebellion at the end of the thousand years, but then we'll also be looking at a new heaven and a new earth and new Jerusalem. So very exciting. It's, it's, it's all downhill at this point. So I'm excited about that. I'm surprised we're almost done with the book of Revelation. It's been... It's been, a, it's been a good study for me personally. Every time I go through it, I love it. You know, the Bible talks about it in, in uh, I think it's in chapter 1, that there's a blessing for those that read and study and listen to the book of Revelation. So if you've been studying along, there's a, there's God's, that's one book that God promises to bless people if they study it. So even here to this, this morning, you're hearing the book of Revelation, you're hearing this portion of it, hopefully there's a blessing for you, and I believe there is. Um, of course, the best blessing is as we incorporate the things that we learn into our lives and we obey what the Lord speaks to us. That's where the blessing truly comes. So why don't you stand and let's go, Lord, in prayer. And if the worship team wants to come on up. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. What a, what a blessing, Lord, um, to see, Lord, in the end, of course, you win. And we know that, Lord. And, and just to be reminded Lord, the things that we see, the wickedness that's going on in the world around us, Lord, it, it won't continue unended, unending, Lord. The, the sin, the, 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 uh, the things that are just not right, the injustice in the world, the cruelty in the world, Lord, that there will come a time of judgment. And so, Lord, I just thank you that, uh, Lord, you've not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. And we rejoice in that. So, Lord, I, I pray your blessing upon your people this morning, and thank you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you sit down, and we'll just do one more worship song. And then...